ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology, are the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs, no, we You're listening do to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, a critical examination of the world of pseudo-archaeology and the misrepresentation of archaeology no, in the world today. Each episode, we focus no, the lens of archaeology on a topic and discuss reality versus fantasy. We've covered everything from ancient aliens to crystal skulls, from DNA to modern fakes. Join us for our discussion this week and get ready to think critically. Digging in a trench, monuments. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Head, and I am joined today with my co-host, Jeb Card. Jeb, how's it going? Well, hello! I know, you've been a while. Yes, uh, things, things, and things. There you go. Well, and I, I know the semester started, so I know you're, you're roaring into the new semester. Oh, it, it starts tomorrow, unless you're also teaching online in the winter, in which case it started four weeks ago. So, awesome. yes. So my classes theoretically started two weeks ago, so. Yeah. Well, and today we have a special host, a special guest with us, and we're bringing in Emily Holt, um, all the way from France. We we made her fly back from France two days ago just so she could be on this podcast with us yeah, today. Yeah, she was not she was not allowed to speak from France. That, that's, no, no. We that's were like, no French, no, no, no French okay. speaking. By the way, that, that's not actually true. <laughs> so, Emily, how are you? I'm doing great. And now, are so tell us a little about yourself. Well, um, I'm currently a visiting assistant professor of classics um, and also teaching some anthropology at Miami University of Ohio. A place no one has ever spoken from before. Oh, no. No, not at all. Not, no, I mean, sure. Like, I mean, like, certainly not you. I was going to say, Jeb's totally not from there. No, no not at all. Um, I'm also uh, an environmental archaeologist. I focus on the Bronze Age on the island of Sardinia. Um, and I study this really cool culture called the Nuragic culture that built thousands of uh, really cool stone towers all over the island. And those towers are called the Naragi. And that's where, you know, the name Nuragic culture comes from. Um, and now, when you call these when you call these towers, I'm looking at a picture of them right now. There's a lot going on. Like I'm looking at a picture of a of their 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 foundations and there's multiple towers and walls and all kinds of cool things next to them. Like these are not this is not a simple sort of monolith like these are impressive structures. They're super impressive structures and they come in a, a wide variety of forms. So there are some that are sim- single towers. Okay. Uh, there's a lot that are complex towers um, that have multiple towers. There are some that are whole complexes, which it sounds like that's what you're looking at, where you've got like a central tower, and then you'll have a courtyard, and you'll have mm-hmm. multiple towers around it, and then you'll have a village, and then you'll have a, a wall around that, maybe with some more towers. So they are. They're very impressive. They can be quite large. Um, they, they probably housed a, a pretty large number of people, especially the ones with villages. Um, so they are really oh. impressive structures. Yeah, that's that sounds really cool. So they were living inside these towers, or they were occupying these towers in some capacity. Yeah, probably the towers um, were housing um, certain segments of the of the culture. Um, you know, probably elites. Uh, they tend to have domestic refuse in them, um, but then also sometimes um, some cool stuff like bronzes. Um, so probably kind of a, a powerful segment of society um, getting these things built and living inside them, um, and then a lot of the rest of the community clustering around in the villages. Now, when just just for timeline wise, when was the Sardinian Bronze Age? Ah, yes, good question because it's different everywhere. Yeah. Um, so the the best radiocarbon dates we have um, suggest that the Bronze Age goes from about. 1700, maybe as early as 1750 BCE to about 1900, you know, 1900-ish ah. BCE. So this right. is contemporary with like the Minoans, the Mycenaeans, the the sort of height of the Egyptian Empire, the Hittites. That's that's that kind of time frame. Oh, yeah. okay. So you're telling me the Sardonians were the ones coming over and stealing all the copper from Michigan? Oh, just, <laughs> I had to do. You, that. you had to start already. You had to start. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fair. You can say no; it's fine. They they did ha- they did have quite um, a copper industry and bronze industry on Sardinia mm-hmm. at the time. Nice. Um, but as far as I know, they weren't stealing any from Michigan. I mean, it. <laughs> well, raised- you're it, not on contract with the History Channel, so you. This can is say also that. true. Exactly. I can I can tell the truth. Ah, <laughs> oh, already slamming history. Ah, it's a good day. But uh, but but so so really like like lots of complex structures, lots of 
are are is are they tied into the larger Bronze Age Mediterranean? Yeah, they absolutely are. Um, okay. and so the the extent to which and the exact nature of how is very much up for debate, but they certainly are tied in. And we find um, pottery from the Nuragic culture showing up in sites, uh, Bronze Age sites um, on Crete and Cyprus. We find stuff coming from the East Mediterranean, um, uh, some uh, bronze um, and um, pottery showing up uh, at sites uh, on Sardinia. We have a Sardinian industry that makes imitation pottery. Cool. How is it imitation? How is it imitation? Yeah. So it's um, it's just not imported. So they're using right. the the local, mim- local clays. Yeah, local clays to mimic these uh, oh, East okay. Mediterranean shapes. Ah, okay. So, um, yeah, so we have a lot of that. We also have some, some, you know, there's this a really cool little ivory um, figurine that depicts a classic Homeric warrior with the boar's tusk helmet. No, really? That is cool. So we definitely have some indications of, of uh, trade and contact, but then the question is kind of how much, you know, how extensive, how frequent it was. And that's what is very much still debated. Well, that sounds like a really fantastic site, honestly. I mean, it's I- fascinating. It's really. I can't get some pictures to put up on the website for people because you kind of have to see these things. <laughs> so, so you're studying. Uh, so, what what's kind of your particular angle? Because I mean, the, the, there's the Naragis to study, and and you're examining it in a couple of different kind of methodological and theoretical ways. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm really interested in the early Naragic culture. So, the stuff that's when it's just getting its formation, when it's just starting to build. Not even the really super pretty towers, but some some kind of experimental earlier towers. Um, and I'm interested in what's going on socially in that time that's allowing them to kind of aggregate power like that. Um, and then I'm putting that, as an environmental archaeologist, I'm putting that against a backdrop of, okay, well, how is their uh, interaction with their environment helping or hindering or leading into that formation of, of social hierarchy? Um, and so what I've been finding so far um, is I'm looking particularly at issues of water management. And it looks like this is uh, quite potentially, although we really need to do more with the environmental reconstruction to be certain about this, but it looks like this is a moment when uh, there's a lot of hydrological change on Sardinia, that water is drying up in some locations and uh, uh, reappearing at lower elevations. Um, and this seems to be really destabilizing in some ways for this uh, for this culture, for the neurogic culture. Um, we see these early uh, my, my research is showing that these early towers are built not just kind of close to water sources, which is what people have identified before, but at least in my area, they're built right up next to them, uh, literally next to these water sources. And when the water sources dry up, they appear to move the towers down lower into more of the lowland elevations. But instead of building them beside water sources, they build them literally on top of them. Um, hmm. So there's more of a claim. Um, being so- are the water sources still usable once they're built on po- on top of? Oh yeah, because they okay. Put, um, okay. So, so what, when I say they they build on top of them, I mean that they put the water source as a as a well. Um, okay. okay. Uh, you know they'll they'll tap into an underground river, um, and but but they put that in the courtyard or even directly inside the main. Interesting. Tower. So Interesting. If you to access the water, you would have to have access to the structure itself, whereas before these water sources were on the outsides of the structures. Yeah, this huh. this reminds me a lot of uh, if you work in northern Yucatan, like Chichen Itza, these other sites, they have to be on top of the cenotes, the the water holes, because they're the karstic topography there. All the water immediately goes into the water table. There are no rivers, there are no lakes until you get a bit farther south. Huh. And and you know Chichen Itza literally means at the mouth of the well of the Itzas. Itzas are a dynasty, uh, and water is absolutely important there. You mentioned drying up. Is that due to human use or is it outside of their control during the bronze age it looks outside of their control it looks like it's a response maybe to changing precipitation patterns this does fall at a time when um, environmental archaeology in the east mediterranean has entered um, has identified drying episodes and like decreased rainfall in that area now Mm. we generalize um, as you know uh, environmental stuff can be super local and we haven't done as much research specifically for Sardinia as we need to to really pin that down. But it's not unlikely that Sardinia right. would go through a similar kind of drying phase and that change in precipitation would cause a, a change in the hydrological systems. Got it. Okay. Well, that's uh, really interesting because it's demonstrating water's power. So that's oh, yeah. 
I think that's fascinating. Personally. So you're, you're saying that you're saying that we should understand Sardinia as the the Fury Road, uh, Mad Max. Is that what you just said, Sarah? I think that's uh, said. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, what is it? The end of the end of the world. The bar at the end of the world. Yeah. So we're talking about all these cool scientific things of understand, and not just scientific, but scientific and social science, and you know, because you also examine a lot of this symbolically. So it's a mix. You're mixing like ecological and social networks and symbolic anthropology, uh, and these are all awesome. This show is sometimes named Archaeological Fantasies, and <laughs> there are also some things that people say about Sardinia that aren't quite as tied to the sorts of careful analysis that you are discussing. That is definitely true. What um, sorts of things are those? Well, there are a, a couple um, that get talked about a lot. One is the existence of giants. Um, yeah, and, that's a fun one. Uh, that is a fun one. Um, but one that I find um, particularly fascinating because of how layered and complex and problematic it is, is the claim that Sardinia was Atlantis. And the way that, oh that claim is being made very strongly, very publicly, it goes, um, it's probably, it probably predates significantly uh, 2002, but the, the claim was um, kind of introduced in a very public way by a Sardinian journalist who wrote a book in 2000. Really? presenting this idea um, and it has been growing in its power since then. And it's, it's achieved a lot of um, international attention in a way that, you know, as an archeologist who works on Sardinia, um, I find very concerning and problematic because obviously I would like Sardinia to be known for the amazing things that are true about it, as opposed to a concocted amazing thing. That's not true. I, no. I'm, I'm having to bite my tongue a few times here because I keep wanting to be like aliens. Um, yeah, well, but for, I know for that's our not list- right. For our listeners, uh, the we have talked about this before. Ken has talked about how Atlantis is a a place a long time ago, far, far away. In which, if you know, you, you go back to our episodes on Atlantis, where he talks about Atlantis only shows up in written records as uh, Plato with the stories of Timaeus and Critias, and I and Emily, you are the classic scholar, so feel free to say, by the way, that's not how you say either of those names, but um, where Plato's asking about the sort of ideal state, and his students pop up. It's like, well, I heard a thing where my grandfather went to Egypt and read a thing, and of course, at this time in classical Greek culture, Egypt is sort of considered the place of all old weird stories he, and knowledge did he read the thing or wasn't he told the thing by another person who was like an I, old old priest of the fallen group of I, people i emily feel free to jump in but i think he reads stuff in the libraries there from an, another scholar right but so like it's like sixth hand information by the time oh yeah yeah also plato this. is making this up because he did that for teaching purposes right 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 i mean yes. this is a thought no, just experiment. for our audience just for our audience yes um, but since then, Atlantis has been found damn near everywhere. In fact, somebody recently asked, shouldn't we make a map of where Atlantis has been found? Wouldn't that be fascinating? And I, th- I, I think I responded at some point, it would be far easier to make a map of where Atlantis has not been found. Yeah, because the Americas at one point were considered Oh, yeah. Atlantis. Tiwanaku. Yeah. Central Central Mexico. So just to point uh, out how how like Atlantis is everywhere. But you're if, saying if, if, if your name is, you know, say Ham Grandcock, you, you might mention that North America is Atlantis until it gets killed by a comet 13,000 years ago. You know, those sorts of things. It, it's everywhere. Yeah. Wow. But uh, Emily, you were saying that uh, a book came out in 2002. Yes. Tell, tell us about this. I'm not yeah. sure I'm familiar with this. Oh, OK. So um, 2002. Um, a, a very eminent and prize-winning journalist, uh, Sergio Frau, uh, came out with a book called uh, Le Colone d'Ercole, uh, or uh, Un, Un Inquiesta, um, or, you know, The Columns of Hercules. Um, um, and, oh, I don't Which know. is usually <laughs> taken to be like the Straits of Gibraltar, right? The Pillars but, of Hercules. It is usually taken to be the Straits of Gibraltar. But what um, Frau argues is that it's not, in fact, that it is the Strait of Sicily, so that bit of the Mediterranean between Sicily and Tunisia, Okay. Um, and that that means that this, you know, island um, that's right outside the, the, the straits, you know, the, the columns of Hercules would then be Sardinia because Sardinia is right out, you know, basically, if you just kind of turn north coming out of the Strait of Sicily, you hit Sardinia. So his argument is that, it, you know, they're actually talking about, um, Plato's actually talking about 
Sardinia, and that Sardinia is Atlantis. Um, and this uh, this book really created quite a sensation. And um, one of the things that has been interesting to me in trying to figure this out is um, trying to figure out if Frau was uh, totally self-funded at the beginning or not. I don't know. I haven't been able to, to trace that. This is a reporter. This is a reporter. So this is a, a journalist. He worked for La Repubblica, um, he, you know, which is a very, um, you know, uh, well thought of uh, Italian newspaper. Okay. Um, ba- based on our, based on Sardinia or based on the mainland, out of curiosity? That's a mainland newspaper. Okay. All right. Um, and, um, so yeah, so no, he, no, he's, he was quite well known, um, for his work as a journalist. Uh, but then he comes out with this book and, you know, in some ways, probably his, his status as a, as a journalist helped make this book, um, got this book taken seriously. Uh, but he makes this, uh, argument that this is, that, you know, Sardinia's Atlantis. And, uh, shortly after the book comes out, so the book comes out in 2002, in 2005, he manages to get a symposium and a photo uh, exhibition. Oh boy! Also in Paris, and the symposium was uh, called "Knowledge of the Ancient World: Where Were the Columns of Hercules?" Oh boy! And the the photo exhibition that went with it was Atlantica, Sardin, Ilmit. Um, and so you know, Atlantis, the things of Atlantis, um, Sardinia, uh, the Mythic Isle. Okay. But this was presented at UNESCO in Paris. And this is when people talk to me about this, this is frequently evidence that this guy should be taken seriously. And I don't know how he kind of swung that, but uh, he was able to swing it and it definitely lends credibility to let me, this claim. Let me ask a question. Is this a, this is probably not the case, but there are similar cases or reminiscent cases of uh, what might be called the cultic milieu, where you have events at a place of prestige, but it's a place of prestige where you can literally rent them out. So in 1990, I want to say four, it could have been earlier, but I think maybe it was published in 94, there was the MIT conference mm-hmm. on UFOs and abduction. This is uh, referred to in C.G. Bryant's, I want to say, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. This was not a thing put together by the academic folks at MIT. MIT was happy to rent out for money some of their facilities for a weekend. Uh, The same thing has occurred with various disclosure movements in the UFO community where they hire the space of the National Press Club. And everybody thinks that's a government thing. It's like, no, it's literally just a thing. It's a room in Washington known as the National Press Club. And they paid several former Congress people to listen and I don't want to say pretend to be Congress people, but kinda, while people said, Well, I saw this and I saw that at the National Press Club. And because it's the National Press Club, mm-hmm. oh wow. And so therefore it got a lot more reporting and a lot more credibility in, in media. Well, it, it's is that, it's that anything borrowing, like that? It's that borrowing of authority that we talk yeah. about. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And I think it's very likely that that's what happened in this circumstance. Um, again, I haven't been able to, to right. dig into it completely to figure that out. Um, but I think it's very likely that that is what happened, that this was an issue of um, renting space or um, maybe uh, paying to be part of some kind of larger symposium or something. Right. Right. So, yeah, there definitely is an issue of kind of borrowed authority here. Um, and then also the interesting question of uh, was this something that he himself was able to just you know uh press for his book as you know self-promotion or uh, you know something i want to ask you a question before we go to break and that's do you do you know or are you comfortable speculating um is the sardonian government backing this and it's maybe a little bit of nationalism going on here i strongly doubt that the government is backing it I, i i wouldn't be at all surprised if i discovered that um some local businesses some sardinian businesses we're perhaps backing it. Interesting. But, but I, I strongly doubt that the government itself is providing funding for this. So this would be this would be more like uh, you know, there are the claims that on um uh Santorini, the island in 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 the Aegean, that it's Atlantis. The Greek government does not support that, but there are businesses that are happy to say, Hey, we're the Atlantis travel right, agency. Right. The, yeah. This is not like the Bosnian government that supports not, not like the, the, the pyramids. Bishoko pyramids. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, the, Sardinia actually has, it's one of two um, autonomous regions of, of Italy and it actually has its own president. 
mm-hmm. president of Sardinia is a scientist. I can't, really? Yeah. I can't really imagine. I'm I'm sorry. I, I, I'm blissing What's that out. Like? I, I'm going to say I'm blissing <laughs> out right now a, a little. I'm just, uh, I just, I'm just going to leave that there. Yeah. I also note that uh, if your government's maybe run by a, a hotel person, you don't get to be part of UNESCO anymore, <laughs> which we're not. Anyway, yeah. so no, I think that I think that what backing is is being given to this is almost certainly coming from business interests that see this as beneficial to tourism and travel and things like that, um, and not coming from the government. I, I can't say that a hundred percent, but I would say that with ninety nine percent certainty. Uh, that's fine. I, I'm just like, I'm trying to not be mean about it with the business community because it's like, you know, it's a business. You want to make money. I get it. But are you, I, are you just, are you disparaging my ghost tours? Is that what you're doing? Dude, I want to do a ghost tour so bad. Yeah. I've I haven't done. done the Philly ones yet. But anyway, that's completely I, off topic. I, I, I've, I've already run one, but <sighs> not for, not for money. So. Oh, no, that's, money's not the part of it. It's the telling the stories. But anyway, yes. Uh, let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, we're going to start figuring out why Sardonia is is Atlantis. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the We hope you're enjoying spent. this episode. Please be sure to check out the show notes Funny at com for further information about our hosts, guests, and topics in this episode. This podcast is listener-supported, and we appreciate every donation, either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode, or monetarily on Patreon and Kofi. You can connect with us on the blog, by email, or on Twitter, thanks to all of our supporters. And let's get back to the show. Raise your trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Everyone, and we are back, and we are still speaking with Emily Halt about Sardinia and the fact that it was Atlantis, right? Oh, yeah. Well, totally. 100% case closed. We found yeah, Atlantis. Yeah. Shows it's, it's, over. It's, it's the best of the 300 places Atlantis has been found. Mm-hmm. Only 300? Well, I mean, it's uh, certainly, no, probably not. you know, in my opinion, certainly has the best food. Oh, well, okay. I've never had Sardinian food, so I'm going to have to take your word on that. But I do love Mediterranean food, so if it's close, I I believe you. What it's would be what would be a Sardinian dish day something? Oh, my goodness. There's so many. Um, but one <laughs> of my favorites from – I mean, and they're all delicious and wonderful. One of my favorites from the, the town where I work um, is um, a type of um, ravioli where the filling – is slightly sweet and it's made of ricotta and orange peel. What? And oh, that sounds. I mean, you had me at ravioli, but that sounds really good. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> ravioli aside, the rest of this podcast is now dedicated to Sardinian cuisine. Well, oh. I mean, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, but we were talking about Atlantis and um, how Frau has created an argument that the this Sardinia- is a jur- this is a journalist. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. The, the journalist Frau has created a – there are a lot of parallels here between him and – I mean, it's Graham Hancock. I mean, there's there's nothing I can do about it. It's, I, it's, I, I didn't say that. It's, I mean, they have the same background. They're both journalists. Jur- journalists who then found Atlantis in, in Right, they're three both journalists places. who both have a theory about where Atlantis is. And I but, has he, but has he taken DMT and spoken to the machine elves? Uh, I don't think he has. <laughs> anyway. I don't, I don't even have anything to come back with that on. No, you don't. Uh, <laughs> But Frau, Frau has managed to get a little bit more legitimacy behind his claim only because he has had a more reputable platform to speak from um, than and just getting on the TV machine and shouting at people. Yeah, and he's, he's been very active um, in promoting the idea. You know, he's put um, together um, exhibitions, you know, photo exhibitions. And what I think is interesting about these these photo exhibitions... I was going to ask you, can you tell us about the, the, these expositions? Like, what is he showing us? Uh, absolutely. And what I think is really... Part of what makes this very effective is that a lot of what he's showing are just fantastic, detailed, beautiful images of the sites themselves, of artifacts, um, you know, of these neurologic towers. And so he's really displaying Sardinian archaeology, which is um, not well known outside of Sardinia itself. Uh, it right. doesn't a lot of major, you know, public attention, you know, global attention. Most people, when I tell them where I work or the culture I work on, um, have no idea 
where Sardinia is, whether or not it is part of Italy or France right. uh, or, or part of neither, and have never heard of the neuragic culture. So he's getting these um, otherwise unknown images uh, out to a, a much wider audience. And that's, in a lot of ways, cool. Um, this is something I routinely hear about shows like Ancient Aliens and others where you'll hear people go, well, I know it's entertainment. I don't believe it, but then we'll, we'll get into whatever they believe. But I will routinely hear, but I get to see these places I've never been able to go, and they go and shoot and show these cool places. I hear that a lot. Yeah, and that's part of that strategy, isn't it? It's part of the, the rhetorical strategy of drawing people into the pseudo-archaeology is – show them all the real stuff that's cool and amazing and impressive, and then alongside it present the pseudo-archaeological claim. And so a lot yes. of you know, what you see in these exhibitions, and there's one going on right now that appears to be, and again, I'm not 100% sure, but it appears to be more or less like semi-permanent at Elmas uh, Airport, which is the main airport of Sardinia. There's, there's several, but it's probably the biggest. It's, it's in Cagliari, or just right outside of Cagliari, the capital city. Um, and it most of what it's showing is just the gorgeous archaeology of Sardinia. Mm -hmm. But then it puts it in this context of the claim that Sardinia is Atlantis and um, that the entire, you know, the neuragic culture was destroyed by a tsunami and that all of the, all of these great towers um, are collapsed because a a tsunami knocked them over um, because of course that's how Atlantis was destroyed. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, I find it very frustrating because I would love for everybody who, sets foot in, you know, the, the airport of the, you know, Elmas airport to see the beautiful archaeology of Sardinia and to realize that they're on this island that has this incredible culture. Um, but I'd really like them to see it not presented in such a way where it's couched in pseudo-archaeology. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is the challenge is getting, getting archaeology out there, especially in America. Like this seems to be, It seems to me to be a very American problem in that we don't have a lot of good factual archaeology. I don't think we have any factual archaeology on our television. It's it's an issue that begins with C and ends in uh, colonialism. Right, right, right. Well, you know, one of the things we could do is maybe stop doing that. Um, But but it's very easy to get a pseudo archaeology show on the on the television, and yeah, they do. They. Legends of the Lost is a perfect example. She got access to a lot of really great stuff for really, really great researchers. Um, and then, you know, the first 20 minutes of the show is mm-hmm. facts. And then it jumps off the deep end. Yeah. No, cause, cause Vikings, but it's so Vi- Vikings subtle. are equal to Bible cannibal giants. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And it's just like, it, it's so subtle that unless you are already aware of what's happening, you don't notice it right off the bat. Like with the Troy episode, man, I was completely lost, but. Sardonia, like it's 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 far enough outside of my knowledge base that well, yeah, I mean, you're not going to sell me on giants, and you're not going to sell me on Atlantis. But if you made it just factual enough, well, I would be like, "Mm, that sounds that's the first chap that's the first chapter of Ken's frauds, myths, and mysteries, where he talks about, "Hey, I believed all this until I ran into a point where I realized it wasn't true because I knew this part." But right. everything before that, I, I had been I had been nodding my head. Uh, Emily, you mentioned um, uh, tsunami and the towers. Does the the uh, this um, Sergio Frau his, his first book is? Did you say two thousand and two? Two thousand two. Yeah, it was, was. Is that in there? Um, I believe it is. Okay. I believe the claims um, stay pretty much the same. So there's a second okay. book that's come out in two thousand and seventeen. Okay. So very recently. Um. That, um, you know, kind of reiterates the claims and adds in some um, additional stuff. But, yeah, that claim that um, the neurotic culture was destroyed by tsunamis, that's definitely in the first book. I, I just was wondering because there was a, there's been a lot more attention since the, the disasters of 2004, the Boxing Day tsunami in, yeah. in Indonesia and the Indian Ocean. I just I, I saw a lot more interest in tsunamis in various places, including in yes. sort of alternative places after that. And I was just wondering if that was a reaction. It sounds like the answer is it, it was not. No, no it, it, it wasn't. It, that was, um, there was a necessity of that being part of the story because that's part of the Atlantis story. So no, that was absolutely right, in right. there, you know, from the very first, uh, you know, presentation of this. Um, it's true that there has been more of an interest in Mediterranean archaeology in the possible occurrence of tsunamis. And that subsequent research has shown that there have been Right. So not- well, I was just going to ask you that because I'm I'm reading an article that I pulled up, and of course it's the Daily Mail, so take it how you want. But it oh, is, so many things to be said. But I will. So many I things. Won't. But you know, like it's a good starting point for me to come up with wacky things. 
was Sardonia hit with a tsunami? So, not to my knowledge. Um, okay. And it's certainly nowhere near like the the famous one that does damage Knossos and Crete. It's not near Thera. It's not near Santorini. No, it's uh, it's not. Um, so, to my knowledge, there is no tsunami that hits Sardinia at the right time to be responsible for what um, you know for for the you know quote unquote collapse slash end whatever of the neuragic culture. Gotcha. There has been. Um, yeah, to my knowledge, there is no geological evidence that there was um, a tsunami at the right time. Um, so that, of course, means that there was, and you're just covering it up. Well, and, and you said that's around 1100 BCE, which it, is very it, much part of the big collapse of the Bronze Age and the greater Bronze Age world stretching from Pakistan to the Mediterranean. Yeah, it is. It, it comes a little on the late end of that sort of yeah you mentioned that i was a little surprised when you said that i was assuming you were going to say 1200 you're like 1100 i'm like oh no okay and and even arguably arguably a little later even even down to it um it it kind of is in that range um so no it it, it's late on the wave that that wave seems to kind of go east to west and sardinia gets it interesting Um, interesting not an actual wave folks like a a metaphorical wave yeah metaphorical definitely metaphorical um but uh, but no there no there's not a tsunami and the there are attempts to argue that um you know that we can see evidence of the of the tsunami um that covered you know that destroyed all of the naragi and, and covered them with quote unquote mud um but the the excavation of these structures shows exactly what you would expect archaeologically for these structures which is you know there's often a big layer of collapse and then um, that layer of collapse catches a bunch of, you know, windblown sediment and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then under the layer of collapse, there's, you know, the, the same kind of stratigraphy that we would expect um, for any, you know, kind of um, habitation site. And this, um, is, this is one of those things that, you know, archaeologists, they do what they do. But I've had this experience, and I suspect you all have had this experience, where you're doing your archaeology and your potsherds and your stones, and you think you understand stratigraphy, and then they send in some geoarchaeologist or geologist who's like, now let me show you the stratigraphy. And they go into all the pedology and all the soil formation, and they show you all of these just like incredibly detailed schemes of stratigraphy. You basically at that point kind of nod your head. You're like, I know you know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) But this is one of those things that's actually pretty well understood if I'm not wrong. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. People, you know, not my area of specialization, but people do understand very well um, the formation, you know, sediment formation and sediment deposit and and um, those processes. And there's nothing to indicate that the sediments covering these these sites were deposited by water, you know, so, other rainwater and erosion. I have another question for you then, because I'm into this article now. Um, so since you have confirmed for me that there was a giant tsunami that did destroy all of these towers. Uh um, This is sarcasm, by the way. Right, right, which you totally didn't do. Can we then assume that this non-existent tsunami was caused by a giant asteroid slamming into the ocean? Well, I mean, what else causes giant tsunamis? I mean, except maybe large monsters, but... Well, oh, okay. Uh, hello. Uh, I was going to say on the topic for the rest of the show. <laughs> I have. I I actually have found your your giant connection here. Okay. Um. Yeah, yeah. But I, I want to talk about the comet first, just because like there's two articles now that I've pulled up. One from a reliable site, and one is this, from is this coming? Mail. Is this some of this coming from Jason Colavito? No, actually, this is coming out of the Daily Mail right here. I haven't oh. actually gone over Colavito's article oh. yet. Okay, I'm just going to slink into my chair now. Continue. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's going to get painful. Um, so one of the claims, if you were not aware, uh, or our listeners may not be aware, uh, of course, you know, Atlantis was destroyed, was pulled under the water by the gods or something. I don't know. I don't remember all the story anymore. But so, of course, Sardonia is not underwater. Um, so that would be the first strike against it being Atlantis, in my opinion. But yeah, it's kind of major. Yeah. And, you know, we hear this whole, like, catastrophic, I mean, catastrophic flood thing. We hear this a lot when we deal with creationism and the whole, like, you know, everywhere on the planet, there's evidence of a giant flood. It's like, yeah, sure, but not all at the same time. I mean, it's it's like the flood, the giant, there's no such thing as a giant flood that flooded the earth. There's no evidence for that. And it's the same thing I'm hearing you say about the tsunami. Yeah. Um, And it also is interesting to me that we come to this comet thing, because the comet 
connects in two different ways for me. Um, one, you know, we're dealing with this uh, theoretic comment that uh, caused or ended the younger or caused the younger Dryas, which of course destroyed all of the megafauna ever, which again, this is total sarcasm. That's, I mean, there's no evidence of this. Well, no, this they, there are people, there are even some legitimate people that make that argument. And you've had that. We've, we've talked about this on the show before. The vast majority of scientists do not buy this. Right. And right, right. as Ken or I, or others would point out, this idea literally goes back to Ignatius Donnelly in his book. That's not about Atlantis. He writes Atlantis, the antediluvian world. He also writes, was it Ragnarok, a story of fire and gravel, not to be yes. confused with a story of fire and ice known as game of Thrones, <laughs> uh, where he basically argues what we see people arguing to the present, this this notion at the end of the Ice Age, a comet slams into North America right. and causes all the troubles. Which is also interesting because it ties back to things I have heard from... And that was 130 years ago, just to point out to our audience. Yeah, his, his stuff's got legs. But it, it also ties back to some of the, the, the biblical tie-in arguments that I've heard, like the Ice Age. Oh, catastrophism. Um, Right, the Ice Age was start was ended by a giant comet that was sent by God, and it melted all of the ice, and that caused the giant flood. And I know I probably lost a few people, but there is in this article from the Daily Mail a quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Ezekiel, um, pointing out that there, the, what city is like Tyrus, like the destroyed in the midst of the sea? Which, if you don't know... <laughs> is the verse that is used in the argument that Atlantis is mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Because it uh, is Emily, believed- isn't Tyre in Lebanon? Am I wrong about that? No, I think you're right. Tyrus yeah. or Theros? They say it possibly is Theros. Yeah. This- How do you spell that? Well, while you look Tyrus the- or Theros? Either one. Which is, which is the one that's the city that in the sea that gets destroyed? Let me... Uh, let me I think that's Tyrus. Well, while, while Sarah's looking for that, let me just put out for our audience... That these are all messed up Victorian yes. things. Uh, Emily, if you're not aware, this is one of our drinking words on the show. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so Victorian um, and Theosophy. They, they those are the two. It's cards. Or it's a uh, Jeb's rallying cry. Yes. So um, Thoros uh, is the name. There is a city on Sardinia called Thoros, an ancient city. Okay. Gotcha. But so Tyrus, um, I don't recognize that. What this Tharos is that is that more Roman era or or what's the what's the deal? Yeah, it starts out Punic and then becomes, okay, mm-hmm, and it lasts for quite a while. And it's also in an area that was actually um, quite uh, heavily populated uh, by the Nuragic culture as well. So um, there's a lot of Nuragic remains in that general region. Well, I I believe that that possibly Theros thing is, uh, since it's in brackets, was probably added by whoever is the author of this article. So mm-hmm. who knows if that's actually what was actually meant in Ezekiel. They're just adding it yeah. there for their and own purposes. That's the kind of thing, too, where it's so, so important to uh, go back to the original languages. Um, and that's actually something that's really important with the whole Sardinia Atlantis thing. Um, part of this uh, new exhibition that's um, you know being presented at uh, the the Cagliari Airport, um, so, you know, suggests that what the um, Sardinian and what the Nuragic people do uh, after the, the ones who manage to survive the, this great tsunami, what they do is they flee uh, and they go to uh, the Italian mainland and they become the Etruscans. And the the reference that to support this that's that's given multiple times, and I had to I had to dig so hard to try to figure this out, is a reference in Plutarch's Life of Romulus. Yeah, this starts to sound a lot like was it the Aeneas and Troy and the founders of Rome? Well, yeah, it's I mean it's that kind of a flavored thing. But I I, I so I'm like okay, I, you know I can, I can my my Greek is not amazing, but I can read Greek. So I go um. I, I decide I'm going to go back and look, and I'm looking through the life of Romulus, looking for Sardinia, looking for Sardinia, because, you know, the idea is that, that Plutarch says that the Etruscans were colonists from Sardinia. So I'm looking for this and looking for this and looking mm-hmm. for this, trying to find it. I spent like 20 minutes trying to find it. It turns out that's not what Plutarch says. As far I mean, as far as I can figure, and, you know, a brief caveat on, on my Greek is not amazing, but as far as I can figure, looking this up, what he says is that the, the Etruscans were colonists from Sardis, 
which was the capital of Lydia. Yeah, not the same thing. Kingdom in Western <laughs> Turkey. It's not the same. So the Greek word is Sardes, which is Sardis, the capital of Lydia. And the word for Sardinia is Sardo. And it's a different word and it, it you know you decline it differently. And so as far as I can figure, the entire argument that the the um neuralgic people fleeing this, you know, the destruction of their Atlantidian, you know, civilization yeah. going to um going to Tuscany and becoming the Etruscans, uh is based on a mistranslation of the original. Of, you know, I mean that would never happen yeah, so or thing- be used in someone else's book to support their argument that the Etruscans are the descendants of Atlantis. We've already mentioned his name once. So a that one out phenomenon again. that we routinely run into is the sounds alike is alike, or the looks yeah. alike is alike, where it's like, oh, that's that's almost the same sound if you ignore five different things. What's, so it's I safe. was gonna say what's what's really interesting here though is that there's clearly two different words that were at in use at the same time. So this that actually sounds to me like a willful mistranslation because they needed that to be Sardonia, even though it clearly was isn't not. It, isn't Sardi's like a famous restaurant? Am I wrong Sardis. about that? Wow. I Good feel job. like I feel like that's a thing. So I'm, right. I'm going to suggest that that's actually a time traveling fragment of Atlantis that's now a place where celebrities go. I think that's what's happening. Oh, All right, on that, let's go to break real quick, and when we come back, uh, we're going to wrap up. We're going to wrap up this Atlantis thread, and I'm going to connect it to giants. Oh boy. Funny meeting blokes, you will see are a staple of archaeology. This independent podcast is listener supported, and we'd like to take a minute to thank our new Patreon supporters Stephen, Chase Hansel, Timothy Schreier, Laura Kirstick, Mr. Stitches, Nathan Andrew Leaflight, Chris Buchholz, Pamela Ebby, Kate Swanson, Paul Zimmerman, and Kim Shields. Thanks to all our new supporters on Patreon, and if you'd like to join them, just look for Archie Fantasies on Patreon, or you can donate to us one time on Ko-fi. Thanks again for listening. Now let's get back to the show. Everyone, and we're back, and we're still speaking with Emily Holt, and we're still talking about uh, how Sardonia is Atlantis, which it's not, if you can't pick up on my sarcasm. So you've been looking – so on the one hand, Emily, you've got what you've been looking at with uh, water and distribution and symbolism. But on the other hand, you've been seeing increasingly in the 2000s a kind of – would you call it a nationalist push? Or, or, or some kind of identity push towards, by the way, also Atlantis? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so I would definitely not call it nationalism. Um, that, that, to me, would be very much the wrong descriptor. Okay. But I do think that there is a desire for um, a local Sardinian pride. Um, I, I do think that people can latch on to this uh, pseudo-archaeological claim that Sardinia was Atlantis, because, hey, everybody loves Atlantis. You know, that's fascinating. And if you can use that to draw attention to your heritage, um, you know, this, this archaeological, cultural heritage that you have all around you, um, that's cool. And it, it's a source of, you know, potential source of pride. Um, so I do think that there is, um, as in many situations, a desire to, to, to do that, to, to find something that you can think is, uh, you know, really cool about your particular situation. And, and it may be especially potent because um, a lot of uh, a lot of Sardinians, even just talking to my friends in the bar, um, you know, a lot of Sardinians have um, a knowledge that Sardinia has often been a place that was kind of conquered by other groups or colonized by other groups, um, and there can be kind of um, an impression, maybe that that they um, haven't had a chance to really kind of speak for themselves um, as much as they would like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think that the idea that, that there may be um, some popularity in this, uh, you know, this pseudo-archaeological claim, um, because, hey, that's cool. Sardinia was Atlantis. Okay, yeah, maybe eventually, you know, the Romans came and conquered us, you know, maybe, um, you know, certain things are um, not what we wish they were right now. Right. But in past, we were the center of the Mediterranean. We were the center of civilization. So on the one hand, there's this sort of a mythic origins, which, which archaeology very nicely provides of a tie to the beginning that is sort of bigger than current reality. And then secondly, the fact that there's an alternative. I mean, we talk about alternative archaeologies. Well, it's an alternative. It's an alternative to, well, here's all these histories that mm-hmm. don't mention you. But this one ties you into the histories in an important way. Yeah, 
exactly. And I find that this is the toughest thing for me to navigate when people want to talk to me about this claim. And almost all of the interaction I have gotten from, um, you know, friends and acquaintances in Sardinia about this, you know, people who are not professional archaeologists, people who just want to know, is a very sincere, curious engagement. Like, hey, were we Atlantis? Is this, could this be a real thing? And um, I find that I'm in a really complicated position because I hate debunking something that to them, it feels like if I say that Sardinia is not Atlantis, I'm saying that Sardinian archaeology isn't important or that their history is not important or that they didn't contribute to the ancient Mediterranean. And that is absolutely not what I want to say. You know, I'm there doing that work, studying that culture because I think it's fascinating and because I think it is incredibly important and because I do think that Sardinia was a more important player in the ancient Mediterranean than has been recognized um, up to this point. Well, it sounds like you're being it sounds like you're being dealt a false dichotomy. So you're there doing all this research, finding all these cool things, but because these ideas are far more prominent in mass media, and I want to talk about that in a moment. Uh, because they're so prominent in mass media, you're given the opportunity to, or, or you're giving the option to say either, well, that's fine, which you're not going to do because it has no reality, or, well, actually, and then you like push <laughs> your metaphorical glasses up your, your, the bridge of your nose, which, by the way, I now have reading glasses because I'm an old man. But uh, <laughs> that, that happened in the last month. But uh, you're, you're, you're sort of kind of forced to, to – you don't want to say this. You're like, well, look, here's all these cool things, but in a – soundbite culture where this notion is already in mass media of the daily mail as sarah was mentioning of national geographic of other kinds of places if you then just say well that's not true then there you're being kind of pushed into this place where no i have things to say but you're not allowed to say them um yeah it can definitely be like that and that's um i work really hard to make sure that the way that i interact with people about this is to say okay, well, I'm not going to be able to support the Atlantis thing, but let me tell you all of the cool things that are true about um, ancient Sardinia. Um, And I'm lucky in that I do get more of a platform to do that because I work in a small town and people engage me um, over a coffee uh, while I'm sitting at the bar, you know, having my breakfast or whatever. Um, And people generally are willing to listen. Um, But the kind of downside of that is that that, you know, I'm having that effect or I'm talking to those people in my, my town and I don't really know how far that message gets outside of, right. of my town. So by not being as connected to the soundbite culture, it's kind of a, a pro, uh, but then also a con because my, my audience isn't the audience that you have if you're connected to the soundbite culture. Can, can you speak at all to the role of like, you know, I'm aware that Sardinia has shown up in Sardinia archaeology has shown up in a couple of different larger mass media, whether they're American-based or British-based or, or somewhere else in the Anglosphere, somewhere, they're generally Anglosphere. Uh, can, you, can you characterize that at all for our audience, any, any kind of knowledge of that? The way Sardinian archaeology shows up or Sardinia itself? Sardinian archaeology. In, in other words, uh, okay, I'll just put it out there. Sardinia showed up recently on Ancient Aliens, if, if, I'm, if I am not wrong. Oh, it did. Um, yeah, I uh, so I have to confess I didn't actually watch the episode, mm-hmm. so I can't speak to exactly what they said. But okay. it, uh, it did, you know. I, I'm aware that they that they made an episode about it. Well, uh, I can probably sum it up for you. Okay, uh, there are aliens that is came it possible to Earth that in the in the distant past? Oh yeah, is it possible that in the distant past aliens built Sardonia? Also. As that show points out, uh, <laughs> aliens made a deal with fish against dinosaurs. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. That is literally one of their episodes. There's oh, wow. literally an episode where aliens made a deal with fish. Wait, wait, is that dinosaurs. is that why is that why fish became people? No, that's why fish survived and dinosaurs didn't. Okay, I'm sorry, I did not mean to derail that that way. But really, anyway. I, I'm not joking. The the, the I'm uh, not either. I, I know you're not, but the, the premises of the argument from ancient aliens probably is something along the lines of either aliens built Sardonia itself or aliens instructed humans to build Sardonia for their and own And I'm pretty sure purposes. it wrapped in some of the, the things we've been talking about. Both right, like the, the centralizing the control of water and, of course, you know, oh, I don't, towers. Oh, I, I doubt and, it went that deep. Really? I'll, I'll keep, keep going. No, oh, no, no. I'm just... I would be... I'd be pretty surprised if that showed up on your screen. 
Um, the, the Precisely. Water. That's that's pretty recent. Those are pretty recent arguments. Um, oh, okay. They're not. Uh, that's not stuff that's kind of um, out there in the discourse. That's my that's my research. Um, actually, a lot of it uh, I haven't even been able to publish yet. I, I need to hopefully finish that research this summer. Um, I'm I'm hoping to take a group of students out to the field and finish collecting the primary data that's necessary in order to to really fully make that argument. So now you're going you're going to the field. When, when are you going to the field? So I'm uh, hoping to go to the field this summer. Um, okay. The uh, let me just check so that I don't get this wrong because that would be ridiculous and embarrassing. Um, the dates of the field school, which is a, a Miami uh, University field school, um, would be June second, right. and then uh, going through uh, five weeks, um, and so ending on uh, July sixth would be the flyout day. Awesome. So this is a field school run through Miami. You're in the classics department. It's being run as an anthropology uh, course. So basically folks would go to one of those two places to look for more information about if you're like, hey, I want to go work on Sardinia because apparently amazing food and oh, awesome right. archaeology uh, to do that, you would you would go there to see if you could sign up. Yeah, absolutely. You would you would visit um, the Miami, Miami University Global Studies uh, Study Abroad and Away uh, webpage. Uh, you could find my project there. Um, okay. Yeah, you could absolutely apply. I'm definitely looking for more students to go. Um, and it is a delightful place to do field work, very welcoming communities. The food is really good. Um, and uh, and the archaeology is fascinating. Um, and you would be contributing to some brand new research um, that uh, would be looking at these really interesting issues of environment and water and uh, social hierarchy. And one of the things I want to point out, because we do have a lot of listeners to this show that are at least somewhat involved in archaeology. We have a lot of people that are just like, I like crazy things. I like awesome things. I like this. But we have a lot that are in archaeology. Um, your field school is one of the few I've ever heard. I think it's one of the only ones I've ever heard of that, you know, you go to excavated sites, you learn all these things, but you focus on teaching survey techniques yes i do my which are not normally done in field schools but are super important for doing archaeology you mean there's something that i could translate into crm here uh -huh. in the states saying yes. that sarah yes that is part of why this is a great field school for students to do um it does teach really robust uh, um landscape archaeology and survey archaeology methodologies nice. theory and so if you are thinking about not just, oh, hey, I love archaeology, I want to get a degree in archaeology, but then that next step of, well, what do I do with my degree in archaeology? This is a really good field school because it sets you up to do work in CRM, cultural resource management, because you're learning the kinds of techniques that are applied more frequently in that field than excavation. A lot oh. of projects, as I'm sure you guys you know, know better than I do, uh, don't go to excavation. Um, so getting a really solid grounding in survey methods is a great thing for an undergraduate student to do so that they can really turn their archaeology degree into a career. Fantastic. I, I'm going to give that my thumbs up approval then because that is, if people follow my Twitter, it's one of my biggest complaints about field schools. They're just not training people to do CRM. And if you're going into archaeology, the reality of the situation is you're probably going to be working in CRM when you graduate. So absolutely true. Yeah, no, this absolutely sounds like it would be a good fit for that. I, I have just read over Jason Colavito's review of the Ancient Aliens episode on Sardinia, and it, it, it's unsurprisingly all giants and Nephilim and yeah, vultures. So yeah, something we'll, be, something we'll be touching on later then. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> well, Emily, I, do you have any... I mean, you've told us about your your fantastic field school. We've joked around with you, and you've done really well with it. I I really appreciate it. Are there any final thoughts you have about um, your site in Sardinia, the importance of it, or is there just something else that we didn't touch on that you really wanted to get out there for our listeners? Oh, good question. Um, so I mean, I guess uh, I, I would want to close with just a quick pitch for Sardinian archaeology in general. It is. Um, it really is, Sardinia really is a fascinating place, and it has kind of, it falls on this weird divide in archaeology, especially American archaeology, where archaeology is either classics or it's anthropology, mm -hmm. and classicists tend to get to do the Mediterranean, and the anthropologists tend to do everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, but historically, classicists have been more interested in stuff that showed a really direct 
connection with uh, Greece and Rome. Um, And because the the connection of at least Bronze Age Sardinia um, to the East Mediterranean is not as strong as uh, as maybe, um, or at least has not been recognized as being as strong as people would be interested in, the Bronze Age on Sardinia has kind of gotten short shrift and has not been really studied by uh, classical archaeologists traditionally. There's some exceptions and some important exceptions, but it's not a hotbed of classical archaeology. Um, although maybe it's becoming one. We'll find out. Stay tuned. But anyway, <laughs> um, the, the anthropologists who would be more interested in, you know, a prehistoric culture like the, like the, or a non-historic culture, maybe I'd prefer to say, um, like the one, uh, like the neurogic culture, um, have tended to stay out of too much work in the Mediterranean other than, um, you know, kind of everything up to the Neolithic and through the Neolithic because, hey, isn't that kind of the province of classical archaeologists? So I just want to make a pitch. If you're looking for an interesting place to do archaeology, Sardinia, Bronze Age Sardinia, it's so cool. There's so much great work that needs to be done uh, because it kind of just has fallen between some disciplinary cracks. And I would love to see that um, be be more addressed. So, hey, prehistoric archaeologists, non-historic archaeologists, come to Sardinia. Um, Also, great food and weather. Oh, yeah. And beautiful beaches. Really cool. Nice. (laughs) Nice. It's great. It's really great to work there. Um, and, and people are super friendly. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, and the other thing I would just like to do a quick shout out to is, um, in addition to, you know, being, um, a visiting assistant professor at Miami, I'm also, uh, the president of a small, but hopefully growing, uh, nonprofit, uh, called Public Scholar Outreach. Yes. And, uh, what we try to do is help build bridges, um, between scholars who are, are, who are speaking, um, in one way, one format or another directly to the public, whether that's through a blog or whether it's through a great podcast like this or um, some other medium and trying to um, make sure that people know that those, those scholars are doing that work and trying to help get it to the public. Um, nice. Um, See, seeing the kind of stuff you put out and there's a Twitter feed for both yourself, but also for the public scholars. Yeah. I think a lot of listeners to this show would very much like the sort of content that you provide there. Thank you. So you can definitely follow um, Public Scholar Outreach on Twitter, um, just at Scholar Outreach. Um, and we do try and you know, we try and retweet um, blog posts. We try and reach, uh, uh, retweet um, a lot of cool tweet threads. People, you know, great, you know, scholars have been doing these great tweet threads to address all kinds of different issues. We try and retweet those when they come across us. Um, threads, also known as angry rants. No, not in this case. It's kind of like all the cool things you do. It's very positive. You, you, you had you had somebody working recently talking about their their life doing CRM, doing American Heritage yes. Archaeology. You were talking about you've been recently finishing or not finishing, but finishing a section of your own work studying mouse teeth in 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 Paris. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. No, I just I just recently got back from France, as, as uh, you noted. Um, I was working with a team um, at the Museum National d'Histoire Naturelle, and uh, what I'm doing with uh, those wonderful folks is looking at mouse teeth um, as and uh, the the as a mouse teeth as a way of looking at population dynamics, mm-hmm. as a way of looking at human movements. Um, and this is work that is building on um, the work of a number of great scholars um, in and, and colleagues, including Jean Denis and Thomas Kuki and um, Katerina Papayanis. Um, all wonderful people who have done um, pioneering work uh, in this area that I'm now kind of trying to add to. Um, so, yeah, um, but, but Public Scholar does do, um, we kind of do day in the life stuff. So if yeah. you're interested in finding out what uh, a day in the life of, of researchers really looks like, um, we have a hashtag uh, PSODITL, uh, Public Scholar Outreach Day in the Life. Uh, you can check that out. We did recently fe- feature a, CR- a CRM archaeologist. Um, we recently featured an art historian. Um, I did show up uh, recently. Um, so, yeah, check it out and um, give us a follow. And if you are a scholar and would like to tweet your day uh, for us or would like to tell us about your blog or your great YouTube channel or whatever it is, please, please, please send us a direct message. We would love to feature you. No, the, the feeds are full of amazing things. They are at least 15% less uh, mystical glowing orbs than the media might lead you to believe. Uh, are there crystal no. skulls? Uh, sure. Why <laughs> sure, not? Sure. If, 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 if that's what you're studying. Yeah. But no, it's, it's a lot of cool research. Look into the details. And again, I, I really think the, the folks who listen to this show want to learn what's really going on rather than just the same colonialist tropes being fed back mm. would get a lot out of that. 
Well, Emily, thank you very much for coming on to the show. This has been a lot of fun, um, especially since I didn't know a lot about Sardonia, or, yeah, Sardonia before you came on, and I'm very interested now. I These towers are cool. I, I want to know more about them for real. And uh, we'd love to have you back on the show to discuss other aspects of alternative realities at Sardonia uh, at some point. But, you know, if you ever want to share more of your research on Sardonia, uh, please feel free to send it to us and I'll be more than happy to tweet it out there to our listeners. Thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate being on the show. And if I have sparked an interest in Sardinian archaeology in you, then I have done my job. Awesome. That is, that, that, that is my goal. You really have, because I, I will admit, I, it was not an area I was aware of, and now I am. So I really appreciate that. I mean, I, I, I had a vague idea of the Naragis from like a course I took in undergraduate, and like, oh, well, there's some things there. And some of the presentations you've been doing, and some of the things you've been talking about here, it's like, wow, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. It really is. It's amazing. All well, right. Thank you so much. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Extrapolating from a single stone the extent of a whole complex and then publishing it. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider donating to us on Patreon or Ko-fi. Either option helps us out. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the blog, www.archiefantasies.com, and like and share us wherever you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at Archiefantasies, or you can reach us by email at Archiefantasies at gmail.com. That's A-R-C-H-Y fantasies at gmail.com theme music was provided by archaeosuit productions this episode was produced and edited by sarah head no we don't do dinosaurs we don't do dinosaurs see are you happy do you get it now do you get it honestly